welcome to episode number 278 of Destination Linux. Whether you're brand new to open source or a guru of sudo, this is the podcast for you. My name is Jill. I'm Michael. And I'm Ryan. And on this week's awesome episode of Destination Linux, we're going to be interviewing Matthew Miller about the latest release of Fedora Linux. Plus, we have our tips, tricks, and software picks. All this and more coming up right now on Destination Linux to keep those penguins marching. So this week, it's time to find out what Michael's been up to. So if you ever listen to Hardware Addicts, you'll know that a lot of times Michael doesn't have something hardware and we have to make fun of him. <laughs> but since this is Linux related, Michael certainly has something because he's always Linuxing. So what have you been up to this week, Michael? That's true. I am always Linuxing and sometimes I have hardware things. It's been, I, I've gotten better, pretty good at that, having something eventually. A little bit better. Okay. A little bit little better. better. <laughs> but this week, yes, I have lots of Linux things that I've been doing. And I couldn't decide what I wanted to cover in the show. I had like three or four things. But then, of course, when we got uh, Matthew Miller to be coming on an interview, I thought, okay, this has to be what we're going to talk about. So this week, I've been playing around with various spins of Fedora 36. I downloaded six different spins of Fedora, and it was a lot of fun to check them out, right? And obviously, Fedora KDE is still my go-to preference because that's what I enjoy. But I will say that Fedora 36 Workstation with GNOME 42 on my laptop is really nice experience and I am liking it. So I kind of have a GNOME and KDE workflow going right now. Welcome to our side of the bridge. So you're a GNOME fan <laughs> now. So do you want to get some GNOME shirts and maybe we could do a whole episode on GNOME here coming up? Maybe? So, so like I said, I, my go-to is KDE still. Uh, and, okay. <laughs> but GNOME, is it, there are some improvements. I like GNOME 42. There's a lot of cool stuff in it. It's just, it's not, it's not plasma. And therefore... Yeah. Make, but yeah. there's also, we get it. I, I tried a LX Cute. I got the XFCE one, the Mate version. Yeah, nice. uh, I don't remember every version I got, but I, I tried out a bunch of them. And sugar? Did you try sugar? The, the whole sugar. I did not try the the, the Soaz <laughs> version. That's that's one I did not do. Uh, but maybe next time. Maybe next, next time we'll get yeah. that in there. So, but it was pretty cool, and also it made me even more excited for the interview with Matthew Miller that we have later yeah. on the show. Awesome, well, I Michael. also upgraded <laughs> to Fedora 36 this week, but I just did the traditional GNOME route because that's what I'm running mm -hmm. usually. And the installation or the upgrade process was just flawless. And so that's the main thing I want to point out is congratulations to that team because it yes. just went without a hitch. And I hear that over and over and over again from the community and even forums and stuff of people talking about how good the upgrade path has been for this. So they just kind of knocked it out of the park, which is awesome. Yeah. I haven't upgraded my system yet, but I will be doing that soon. I just wanted to play with all... I didn't have enough time to play with all of these different spins and also Yeah, I do. So. <laughs> You're upgrading. Yeah, I did a clean install as well, and then I did a couple VMs of the spins to check them out. VMs don't count, Jill. You have to do bare metal. <laughs> VMs do not count. I do bare metal too. Okay, I, just I checking. Did a, I did a full install on... Uh, a Ryzen machine with a GTX 1080 Ti, and it nice. flawlessly. <laughs> now that's a good test there. Yes. Well, we've had some technical difficulties <laughs> that through Michael's magic, you probably won't see during the recording of this episode. And our community feedback person also has some technical difficulties that they want our help with. So this feedback comes from David. And if you want to send your own feedback to us, you can go to tuxdigital.com slash contact 
to get in touch with us or join the DLN community forum by going to dlnforum.com. David writes us to say, since you guys do video mastering with audio from separate sources on a regular basis, I'm hoping you can help me with some advice. I'm backing up my personal video collection for playback on Jellyfin server, but I'm having trouble with some files. On certain files, I'm experiencing an audio sync drift where the audio starts out synced perfectly, but as the video plays, it drifts further out of sync to where after an hour, the video is almost a second ahead of the audio. The only thing my searches have turned up are the one-click Windows apps, but I want to fix it, not let some app try to fix it for me. Do you have any advice? Thanks. So, Michael, you do a lot of this. Jill, you do tons of this. Mm -hmm. What are some of your thoughts you have when you hear about the experience that uh, David's having? So I've experienced this exact thing myself a couple of years ago with the uh, trying to do certain types of stuff with d different devices. So it was because I was trying to use my uh, playback device and it wasn't, it wasn't powerful enough. I was trying to push it too hard. And at the time I was using Cody on a Raspberry Pi that I had and mm. it, would, it would play some files perfectly and other files, well, not very well at all. After some troubleshooting, I realized that it was the hardware simply couldn't handle what I was trying to give it. And I was using a very old Raspberry Pi, like mm -hmm. second generation, I think. And it would give this drift problem with 1080p video, but would work flawlessly with 720p video. Yes, I did say it was a very old Pi, so that's why 1080p was an issue. But I, I replaced the Pi with something else and the problem was gone. So the first thing that came to my, to my mind was maybe you have an underpowered device doing the playback because a lot of people would instantly think maybe it's because the out of sync issue needs to be a transcoding thing. But if it starts off in sync and then slowly drifts over time, it's usually a some, some kind of device or maybe even a connection issue. But the times I've had experience would be a device problem where it just couldn't handle all of the bandwidth. So if, for example, you're trying to play 4K on a device that can't handle it, then that could be a reason why. Yeah. And also, if you, you're using a slower hard drive, like say if, if it's a server with a 5400 RPM old uh, HDD, that, that sometimes is, can be a little bit too slow for, for uh, streaming video. And it also depends if you're using LAN versus the internet, because if it's the internet, yep. you have that middleman. And also, like what Michael was saying, you could just have the packet loss over time and low latency due to an intermittent wired network, or you're on Wi-Fi. Yep. So we don't know exactly what you're using, but that the, these are some of our ideas <laughs> and possibilities. I think it's interesting that they said some files. So I have to wonder yeah. if all the file formats are the same. That might be something to look into and mm -hmm. check that you're using the playback. But talking about Michael's hardware specifically, I've seen this exact issue with the hardware being underpowered. Sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. Uh, when we talk about power to stream 4K, things like the UM700 that Manjaro and Mini's forum sent us, for instance, is a perfect little device that would be powerful enough to do that. And that's why you see people, when they're doing their home entertainment systems will upgrade past something than a Raspberry Pi. It's not that Raspberry Pi can't do some of this stuff. It's just, it can get bogged down pretty quick if you have multiple streams or things going on in your home. So like the UM700 is a perfect example. Synology NAS, mm -hmm. uh, they have the ability, depending on which one you get, to have the power to push 4K audio and stream across. And then, you know, the streaming device that you have that you're receiving, something powerful like an NVIDIA Shield or those things. Or you could just build your own 
powerful machine with a good integrated GPU or a dedicated GPU, even better, that will kind of help with the uh, ability to stream 4K reliably and multiple streams even going into other areas of your home. So without knowing all the details, that's kind of the, some of the stuff that we've come up with off the top of our heads. But as usual, post this on the forum. This is a great place where yeah. other people have probably set up very similar setups. You could give some idea of what hardware you have. Maybe we could give a more specific answer in the future or the community can as well. So that's a perfect place for one of the forum questions out there. Yeah, absolutely. And if you're having some drifting issues, you might want to pull into the right lane and turn into digital ocean because actually that's not a very good thing. If you turn into an ocean, that would be a bad <laughs> map suggestion, like bad navigation. You could be stuck in a tsunami. You know? Yeah, that's not, but checking out digital ocean is a great idea. So <laughs> this episode of Destination Linux is brought to you by digital ocean and cloud computing can be, let's say complex, but standing up reliable, affordable cloud infrastructure really doesn't have to be. At DigitalOcean, you can enjoy a comprehensive portfolio of compute, storage, database, and networking products that put your cloud infrastructure in capable hands so you and your teams can get back to doing what matters most, building world-changing apps that grow your business. DigitalOcean offers predictable, predictable pricing, which is super important, also robust product docs and services that developers love. Those robust product docs, those are like they have tons of great tutorials. They have literally tons of great tutorials and they constantly keep them updated. It is super helpful. Whether you're in the cloud space or you're just wanting to learn something about how to use your computer, there's sometimes where there's desktop tutorials there as well. Lots of great stuff. And DigitalOcean can help your teams grow from any size. So if you're a team of one person or a team of a thousand people, you can get started and get growing at DigitalOcean with their simple, pow powerful cloud computing. And as a listener of the Destination Linux podcast and a member of the Tux Digital community, you can get started for free. Actually, it's better than free because DigitalOcean is going to give you a $100 free credit when you sign up at do.co slash tux2022. That's do.co slash tux2022. So again, go check out the awesome services that are available at DigitalOcean with their great cloud platform and get that $100 free credit when you go to do.co slash tux2022. We want to thank DigitalOcean for sponsoring this episode of Destination Linux. The driving into the ocean would be like an Apple Maps suggestion. Ah, <laughs> yes. Yeah, 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 That's yeah. a good one. <laughs> well, I was laughing in my head because you're like, they literally, you said they have tons of tutorials, literally tons. And so I was thinking about literally tons. Like, can you weigh out the digital format <laughs> of their guides to know that DigitalOcean literally has weight what to I their data on the internet? A ton is 2,000. So they have over two thousand. So it's so literally literal ton. ton. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So it's, I'm like, I don't know that Digital Oceans weighed <laughs> their tutorials. They have a lot of them, but I don't know if it's a ton. <laughs> they weighed, yeah. yeah, like they, put, they, they printed out every single tutorial and then put the paper on a scale and tested it to see how much it. Is. This week, we would like to welcome back Matthew Miller, who is the Fedora project leader and an engineer at Red Hat, back to Destination Linux. Welcome back to the show, Matthew. Thank you. I'm always happy to be here. It is a good time. Awesome. So today we wanted to discuss the latest release of Fedora 36, which contains contributions from thousands of contributors all around the world. So Jill, kick us off with the first question. So Matthew, it's no mystery that Fedora has actually skyrocketed in popularity and that every release 
keeps getting better and better and better. Can you tell us about the community of contributors and how that's shaped Fedora's awesome growth? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, this really is a community project. It is something where people are coming together to make this thing and working on that. And um, although Red Hat sponsors Fedora, Red Hat's not not the major uh, you know source of work that goes into the project. It is the open source community and the upstreams, and then all of the volunteers, including a lot of Red Hatters who are both. You know, some are paid to do it. Some are doing it because it's, it's part of you know, something they love, uh, work together to make this integration project that brings all this open source together in a polished way to deliver it to users. Community is part of open source and free software overall. It's, there are a lot of different communities and a lot of, a lot of great communities in the open source free software world. Uh, I think Fedora is very special. Not that the other communities aren't great, but we really put a friendship and being a community as something intentional. And so we've got the Fedora foundations that are kind of our values that describe who we are as a project, friends, freedom, features, and first. And we put friends right there as part of it because that is how it all works. It is people who have this common goal and also love to hang out together. I think um, we're really missing having you know, actual in-person uh, events and getting together physically, but we've had uh, some really great online events. We just finished the release party for Fedora Linux 36, and I've done a lot of online events in the last few years, and (laughs) usually um, they are kind of draining. It's like, here's now I've done doing a bunch of extra like webinars and video calls, and I think I'm not just saying this. I'm obviously very biased, but I believe it's true. I think our events are the opposite. They've been really energizing. We've really had like a lot of interaction in the chat. People are excited. Things are going on. And I think uh, there's some of their best virtual events. And it's because you know people are coming together and experiencing that you know, friendship that is Fedora. I love the fact that Fedora has the social hour stuff where you can just come and hang out with people who work on Fedora or just in the Fedora community. And I think that's like every week or kind of... Yeah, we do that every Thursday. We alternate between an earlier in the day and a later in the day to accommodate time zones because we do have people from all around the world. Sometimes it just ends up being a few people and sometimes we've had, you know, like 20. Uh, And... Uh, yeah, it's just kind of a hangout. For a while, we had a no talking about um, Fedora rule just because it was meant to be all all just social, um, especially at the beginning of beginning of COVID lockdowns and things. But we've loosened that up, so we actually end up do talk you know talking about Fedora a lot. But yeah, that's open to everybody, even you know from you know really deeply involved long term contributors to someone who's just kind of new and curious. Even you know you don't need to be even really a, a current contributor. Just come show up and hang out. Yeah, that's Aww. cool. I think the point you made about the these webinars and these conferences, they kind of got dull after a while and you can, they kind of become too, like, I don't know, cookie cutter and that sort of stuff. So they, they all feel like they're, like you said, they were draining. And the release parties, the ones I've been able to go to have always been really fun because there's like special events and games that are being done to, you know, like trivia about Linux or, you know, just having random games that they created off like on the fly there. So like that, that's a really cool approach to doing it because I mean, it like the release parties I've sometimes gone to are just people hanging out and chatting, which is cool, but also to have that element of just, you know, let's, yeah. let's play some games. It's just, it's really fun. 
Yeah, and Marie Norden, who's one of my co-conspirators, she's the F-CAKE, that's Fedora Community Action and Impact Coordinator. It's a, uh, mm-hmm. So she's uh, responsible for community health in a way. Um, so uh, a community support person is how she described it herself. Uh, so she's she likes fun. Um, so she kind of brought that to those things. I think that's uh, nice. been been great. And the Fedora Nest event um, over over the lockdown was so nice. It was it was the best best uh, Linux event I thought online. Oh, I'm, I'm glad to hear that. Absolutely. And we've got another one coming up uh, yeah. in August. I should plug the exact dates, but uh, you know, beginning of August sometime. Yes. Uh, and yeah, I was really really hoping we would be able to finally do that in person, but it doesn't look like it's possible. I think we probably could have done a US only event, but mm. to me that's not what Fedora uh, so Nest is kind of a joke by the way. It, our traditional conferences flock to Fedora, so yeah, everybody flock. everybody flocks to the you know, one location <laughs> like a bunch of starlings, I guess. Um and then you know, we all get together from all around the world. So Nest is a you know stay in your nest and we'll communicate. Um so we'd hope to do that flocking together, but if we can only, you know, if it ends up being U.S. only or something like that, that wouldn't feel like Fedora because we've got contributors from all around the world that we need to get in the right place to you know, to talk together. But we are doing a thing called Hatch, just again, keeping the little bird puns going Aww. here, um, where we're doing some local meetups the month before um, kind of leading into Nest this year. So there are various Hatch events that are going to be happening around the world where people can actually, uh, assuming things are going well pandemic-wise, get together and, and hang out in person, see each other. <laughs> kind of like birds of a feather. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Oh, that's the new one you guys could pick up. Well, I think um, the community is a big part of the success of Fedora. And I really appreciate you kind of breaking down some of that stuff that you guys have done to create that community. And this is not to say other versions of Fedora were not fantastic. However, we've had so many comments and noticed it ourselves that Fedora version 33, 34 just became too good for people to not run it. It just Mm -hmm. really exploded the popularity. In fact, with 34, you tweeted the beta for Fedora 34 was one of the most popular ever with twice as many systems showing up in my stats as typical. I really want to get into what you think kind of changed with Fedora that these releases in this area started just accelerating at a rapid pace. The amount of people talking about Fedora, even our own show, if you go back, we barely ever mentioned Fedora. Then around 33 or 34, it was Mm -hmm. like, oh my gosh, where have you been all my life? (laughs) Like something major changed. And I want to get your opinion on that. Yeah. So from one point of view, I like, I, I wish I knew. I feel like we've been kind of doing doing our thing for a long time, and we didn't really do anything big and different. People just started noticing, and I wish we'd gotten people to notice earlier <laughs> somehow. Um, but I, I do think there are some things that contributed to it. I think one of the things is we started being more strict about keeping to our May, October, or April, May, October, November, like, cadence, uh, which has always been kind of the goal, but we'd gotten in kind of a habit of slipping around the calendar, and it kind of came out at random. And I think that predictability, um, even if it's uh, not always exciting, it just kind of helps it feel like a reliable thing that you can count on. And so I think that that was an important groundwork thing that we did. And then I think that, again, 
to the community thing, there was a lot of community-led innovation that sort of happened. Like, you know, ButterFS was a big thing. And I think, honestly, personally, I don't find file systems very exciting. I think most end users don't find file systems very exciting. But just that, like, community-led change to something that is new and different. Um, people were like, hey, what's going on over here? And kind of started paying attention there. Some other things like Pipewire, I think that was, um, you know... Uh, Christian, who works on desktop team, makes the point that, hey, if you mm -hmm. do things that are important to, you know, YouTube streamers and video streamers, um, suddenly they start talking about the things you're doing. So uh, that was a good move. <laughs> uh, but, uh, but I think it's also a good technical improvement, and it's kind of a leading the way kind of thing. So I think those things helped. Um, and I think just a lot of a lot of the work we've been doing on Polish, as people started to look, they were like, you yeah, maybe they hadn't looked for a while or they hadn't really paid attention. They started to see these things we have been doing. Like, hey, this actually, this is pretty great. As somebody from the outside perspective, not working on it like you all are, but from my perspective, a couple of things happened. One is we started seeing a lot of Fedora, that community that you built, start showing up, right? So they were coming on to streams. They were talking about things Fedora was doing, which piqued our curiosity. So you had a lot of people in your community that you were building that started going into other communities talking about Fedora. So that's something I noticed right away. And Neil would be a perfect example of that, it was going around talking about all the cool stuff that was happening. And then it was the risk-taking, like the ButterFS, the Wayland, the Pipewire, the RPM fusion changes to make it easier and, and to get into these drivers and things. Like it was every release from 33, it seems like you were taking bigger and bigger yeah. risks. Not crazy risk, not chaotic risk, but more risk than other distros we were seeing out there. And I think that's driven a lot of the creativity as well and, and yeah. attention. Yeah, I think that's fair. I think you know, those are also the features and first values we put in our foundations that are also there. So that's kind of a bias we have. Yeah, it's always like I, I kind of run on anxiety around some of these things because we do want to be find that like the leading edge without being the bleeding edge is kind of the place, right? Mm -hmm. Like we don't want people to feel like they have like they their system, you know, might actually hurt them. Like that's that's not that's not what we want. But we want it to be exciting. We want to have those new things when they're ready. So it's always a balancing act. And yeah, I think we've been doing a pretty good job of getting that right. So I think yeah, that I would say so. Definitely. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And also like the ButterFS thing, like the file system might not be the interesting for most people. And I was I was curious about it in general, but also not enough to go and set it up myself because there are a lot of things you have to do to kind of do that. And so I've used OpenSUSE in the past because they had ButterFS. And when Fedora announced that y'all were going to switch to ButterFS, it was really interesting. So I was like, oh, then I want to try this and see what it's like. And mm. then I, I've, I've been on Fedora ever since. So it, it's one of the things that Ryan talked about earlier that we, uh, you know, we talked about uh, Fedora on this show much more since around the 34, 33 era. And that's when I started, that's when I switched to Fedora. And I, you can't even stop me from talking about it these, these days. <laughs> No, so, we literally nice. can't. We yeah. try. Yeah. <laughs> he does like, try. Is there something else? Try. No, no. It's worth <laughs> talking about. That, that's sure. amazing. Yeah. Well, you guys were so willing to take chances. And mm -hmm. even though not everyone was happy with ButterFS, you said, hey, this is what we're doing. <laughs> yeah. 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 <laughs> it was awesome. There are so many great features of version 36 for Fedora. But what are your 
personal favorites for this particular release? Uh, this is always the question I'm least prepared for because I tend to live in the future a little bit because I'm like I like <laughs> 36 is out. I'm you know worried about 37 and 38 now, so I'm like okay, what what was in that one? Um, I think the new Podman version is pretty exciting. I think that's that's nice um, for the desktop. It's a small thing, but I think the new screenshot tool is a huge Ooh. improvement. Mm-hmm. Um, before actually, especially if you have a Lenovo laptop, um, you're hitting the print screen key would take a screenshot um and i had to disable it all the time because it's on the it's on the like it's next to the alt between the alt and control keys right there and i would bump Mm. it all the time and not knowing and my my uh, pictures folder would be full of like random (laughs) screenshots of like oh that's i'm you know uh, confidential work information who knows what else yeah so not not great um but now it brings up a nice little ui um that lets you select from the screen and that's that's good um so i think that's that's not a huge feature but i i like it that's cool (laughs) i also like the fact that they added a video recording for that so people who need to do quick video recordings that's really nice That came in handy recently when I was trying to open a bug report with a monitor. I was having problems with that, some lines, and they wanted kind of proof that the lines were going through. And it's just able to hit the print screen button and record a video of it happening. And it was pretty awesome mm-hmm. that that feature is right there. It's very convenient. I like that feature a lot. Yeah, and I think they're they're gonna be working on some things that let you do annotations and like you know draw the red lines around here's the problem and things like that. And actually, uh, it would be kind of cool if we had a way to just make it easily like submit something to ask fedora with your screenshot and be like here's my problem um that's something to think yeah, about oh, that would be that's awesome. a good idea that, that, yeah i i do like it when people actually type out their problems because videos aren't very searchable um but uh it is it's also really nice to be able to see what's going on i think simple bug reporting simplistic mm-hmm. more simplistic bug reporting without losing the details needed to make it useful is something that all distros kind of need to, to think about. We talked about that and what makes the perfect beginner distro was the bug reporting thing. So I really like that idea where you're going there. That could be something simple that everybody understands no matter what OS you're coming from. And they could just write from there, take a screenshot of the issue, and then maybe fill out some basic stuff and get a bug report in. Yeah. Pretty cool. One of the things I've been actually kind of pushing is, so we have a you know a user help forum um, ask Fedora that and this again. This is something that was largely community-led and kind of um, kind of helped helped support it. But you know, people people built this, and rather than steering people to Bugzilla right away to submit a bug report, and try and steer people to talk about it on the forum and get you know get some help there, get get early triage there, and then um, you know you don't necessarily need to file a bug yourself. Maybe somebody already knows, or then you know once it's more uh, nailed down than file a bug. So yeah, bug reporting is really key, and that's definitely something. Oh, yeah. And earlier, Matthew, you actually mentioned Podman as being something that you're really excited about um, in this release. Um, and so for those who have only used Docker, what are some of the advantages Podman offers? So yeah, I think uh, the key thing is that it it runs uh, rootless very easily and doesn't have a daemon. So Docker, traditionally, a server process starts off and then your client yeah. talks to that. And Podman just has a, a command line architecture that is uh, simple. Yeah, uh, and it's really easy to run from your user account. Um, from a Fedora and your Red Hat universe point of view, the SE Linux integration is very nice. Mm-hmm. I know people love to turn off SE Linux, but it actually containers are really great case for it because it kind of 
you know, provides a wrapping around the container, and there's been several like break out of the container exploits that SE Linux stops, and it also avoids so. Long ago, in the very beginning of SE Linux, we tried to have a targeted policy around the desktop where we tried to make it complicated. You know, these are the rules for each application, and that turned out to just be have so, need so many exceptions. It was frustrating for everybody, and I think a lot of like people's frustrations with SE Linux kind of go back to that. So our current policy, by default, actually allows a lot of things. So it's kind of a kind of tilted towards the only locking down a few areas in security, and so having this actually lets us get um, advantages without the pain because mm. you can wrap that container tightly. And this goes for flat packs as well. Though when you're putting things in containers and th- that way lets you do that sandboxing basically in a way that doesn't need to be so per application and also doesn't get in your way as much. Um, so I think that's nice. And like Podman makes a nice interface from that for command line things. Nice. I think... Another thing about it is that I, so it is a Red Hat project, Red Hat sponsored project, but and I, I I don't want to bad talk Docker, the great great people who've done some did amazing things there, but Docker uh, as a project has always uh, been kind of tied to what Docker the company wanted to do in a lot of ways, um, and so the decision making there was somewhat frustrating, and this is part of why Red Hat finally, Red Hat tried to engage there and then finally ended up being like, fine, we're going to have to make our own thing here, and that's be- because you know a lot of contributions weren't really being accepted into it, and Podman really is run as a whole open source project where you can contribute what you want, and the you know, goals are to make contain- running containers great. It is not to advance a Red Hat agenda of how how you know, this should be able to do a Red Hat tie-in thing. And so you, you'll find Podman on a lot of different you know, non-Fedora, non-Red Hat universe distributions as well. So it's kind of a universal tool. Um, and, you know, you kind of see this as you know, Docker on the desktop as well. Um, you know, they announced, well, they're going to basically make that a commercial product. Um, and that's, you know, that's fine. People deserve to be able to sell their software and make money, uh, but that's not what Podman is interested in. So I think that's uh, well, I think nice part of the it. proof of Red Hat not really trying to dictate it in the same way is the fact they made all the Docker commands work by default in Podman, right? So you don't have to learn some new way of kicking yeah. things off. If you're used to Docker, you could go into Podman and get and be able to execute things pretty easily. Yeah, and it you know it isn't trying to be an uh, that wasn't invented here. We're going to do it our own way kind of right. thing. It's trying to make it easy for users as much as possible. And there are some neat things as well. There's like a, 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 a Podman generate a cube that'll do a make a Kubernetes YAML mm-hmm. file for you from your running containers. So you can take your containers and then if you want to get that to a, if a more complicated you know, Kubernetes OpenShift infrastructure, you get the basic configuration for it from Podman. I think that's, that's a really, really cool. cool feature oh, as well. Awesome. So you kind of going to scale things up. So this is another subject. You, you're probably not passionate about this at all. I don't think anybody's ever heard you talk about NVIDIA. Uh, but let's just <laughs> let's just bring it up for a minute here uh, and just see if yeah. you might have a hot take right. on this. I, I I like to pretend that my rant was like that's what did it, uh, but <laughs> I, it's actually it's been in a, in the works for a while. So I think the timing was just nice on that. But yeah, so Nvidia uh, has decided that they are going to make an you know, open source 
uh, kernel driver and stop doing their weird out of you know, a tree separate thing. Um, there's still going to be a lot of proprietary things. It's going to interface with proprietary user space and proprietary, you know, firmware blob mm -hmm. kind of thing. So it's not a complete win for open source, uh, but it's a step in the right direction. And uh, I really appreciate and commend NVIDIA for taking that scary step and doing the work to do it. Uh, it is going to make things a lot less painful for uh, Linux users in general, for Fedora as a project, um, because uh, we won't have to do things so weirdly and uh, make exceptions. And uh, yeah, it's a, it's a really good thing. I think it'll also show a lot of other companies that you know yeah that that model is not the right way to do it you need to make open source drivers and actually have it work because that's what people are wanting and i know this you know this although i again like i like to think it's my rant but um really like this came from customers who were like this is this is painful nvidia you need to actually do this the open source way because that's the, that makes things easy for us. It's what we need. So it really came from customer demand. Um, and so, you know, again, uh, keep bugging people uh, who aren't doing things open source because it, it adds up and it works. Yeah. Well, NVIDIA and said there were two big things <laughs> that made them change. One was Linus's middle finger and the second was Matthew Miller's rant. So <laughs> yes. that's, yeah. that's what we heard. Yeah. Those were the two uh -huh. things. Yeah. Well, that's... Uh, <laughs> Uh, you actually made the decision in this version to make Wayland the default for NVIDIA. So why did, Matthew, why did you decide to make that change? And what kind of experience should NVIDIA users expect? Hopefully seamless. Um, I think that, yeah, and I don't, I don't know the deep details of this particular thing. So it's probably someone from the graphics team or graphics is probably the better to talk about it. But I, uh, you know, it's, we, we want you know, Wayland for every thing because it is a lot nicer and a lot nicer to develop on um, the basically x as a whole infrastructure is in maintenance mode and the you know there's not anybody working on it really uh, so wayland is the future for everything and that's one of the things that was really kind of holding things back is to try and offer a x-based desktop just because you happen to have nvidia hardware is kind of miserable so moving everything to be the same wayland based thing is better. Yeah, I've been running it just just fine. I have uh, one of the first systems I installed Fedora 36 on was a Ryzen system with a, a GTX 1080 Ti. And it's been running very well. And I've been great gaming on it yeah. and doing show notes and whatnot. And it's been running very smooth. I I'm glad to hear it. Yeah. That's... Mm -hmm. It's getting closer each time. You know, when, when mm -hmm. Fedora made the decision to do Pipewire, it was like, okay, we're doing Pipewire. And then for Every user was like, people still don't even know they're on Pipewire. They don't even realize yeah. they're. It was so seamless, <laughs> the move, that people didn't even notice anything for 99.9% for .9 of everyone doing stuff. Uh, I think Wayland is, you know, it, it, yeah. I notice it after about a couple hours. Like, I'll do, I'll be, I'll be in Wayland, I'll be using it, everything's great. And this is with AMD stuff. And then all of a sudden, I'll go to game or something and I'll get, a weird experience trying to capture the game while I'm playing it in OBS mm -hmm. or not. It's not an everyday use case and everybody, not everybody's streaming everything they're doing, but then that's when I'm like, I bet I'm in Wayland. And then I'll go and like, Oh yeah, I'm in yeah. Wayland and stuff like that. So it pops up. It's not as seamless as Pipewire. 
Yeah, it's. I mean, that's the balance of you know the leading edge thing and trying to figure out where that is. And there's you know, yeah. some of these technologies. There's a point where you have to you have to commit to it because otherwise, 95% of people aren't using it, and you're not able to find out what the problems are because the people who are using it, you know, aren't aren't representative. So we kind of have to do it at some point. Um, I think maybe we were a little too early with Whalen, but it's worked out. Uh, and there still are some things that are painful. Um, yeah, the screen sharing is mm. hard. And that's that's actually fundamentally difficult because one of the things with X is basically everything can see everything else. So it is really easy to make malware that you know um, can you know, do key logging or see, you know, record what's going on in your other windows and so on. So Wayland does not give windows those permissions um, to talk. Applications can't just see what's going on in every other application. You've got to actually talk, you know, through the system and talk to your, the, the desktop environment basically to you know, get that access. And so, you know, that's, that's definitely better, and especially you know, as we get to you know running things in Flatpak, it, it, it X is a gigantic escape the container um, path. Yeah. And so, so it, it was. It's important to get there, but yeah, that screen sharing is also a pain, and also you know, like the copy paste is just like I don't ninety five percent the way I want it to be. Um, it's a little that like that's still some pain around that, but that's gotten better and better as well. I did want to ask you a question regarding the NVIDIA thing, and you touched on this a little bit, but I see the community is really unclear about this. So I was hoping maybe you could help, you know, simplify it for us, because I think a lot of the community thinks now all the NVIDIA stuff that we need to be able to do all the work you want to do on NVIDIA from a desktop user standpoint is now ready to go if you have one of the generations that are supported here. But really, this initial release from NVIDIA is more server-centric than it is desktop-centric. And we can use some of those pieces, I think, but not all of it. Can you yeah that a little so, bit? As I understand it, the initial release basically has support to power the card, but doesn't actually have anything to like put stuff on a display. And that's because... Um, you know, the main use of graphics, well, it's probably, you know, crypto mining is probably the main use of graphics <laughs> yeah. cards, um, which is tragic for everybody in yeah. lots yeah. of ways. But um, but the main legitimate use of graphics cards, uh, really, these, I mean, the graphics, it turns out that there are a lot of, you know, data processing problems, including AI, which, you know, as we're um, computers are trying to take over the world they're going to going to need the computing power to do it like that the things that graphics cards are good at which is a lot of tiny operations in massive parallel you know things with a little a little kernel of code that it runs something you know 2000 times very quickly like that turns out to be great for a lot of problems and so people started using you know, video cards to do these computations first as kind of a hack. And then NVIDIA, part of NVIDIA's huge success is they were really quick to be like, aha, this is going to be a thing. And they started making products around this. And so, yeah, it's, it's GPU compute basically is the thing. And that can, you know, on the desktop, sometimes that's now used for acceleration for, you know, um, software can use it for acceleration, but really it's, you know, big data kind of things in, in server rooms. And so this first thing is meant to power that. And uh, even more 
it's kind of a release early, hopefully release often kind of thing, because this also is not something that is going to go into the mainline kernel as it is, because it is very much um, an open sourcing of how NVIDIA does things and not how the Linux kernel people like to do things. So this, this as it is, will not be able to go upstream um, into the kernel. And so it's going to need to be something, either things from it go into Nouveau, but probably more likely a new driver that is kind of based on um, what NVIDIA needs, because they also, as I understand it, um, you know, want to keep in sync with their Windows driver. They don't want to have a completely separate Linux driver that is, you know, they don't have the resource. Uh, they probably do. They're fabulously wealthy. But they, uh, as, 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 a, as a company, you know, resources are always you want to allocate efficiently and so they don't you know they don't want to have an entirely separate dedicated linux driver team um and so that's uh, honestly as linux users who are uh you know doing gaming and thing like that that's probably better because that dedicated linux graphics team would probably be like you know half a time half time person or something mm-hmm. so this way we kind of get the whole whole thing but like making it so that nvidia stuff works in a way that's linux friendly like that's going to be some work so that's going to be several years of work before there's something that's really going to mm-hmm. fit there um i i hope that we have something that will actually you know drive graphics cards from this i don't know i, I it's not up to me and I'm not doing it so I can make <laughs> wild promises and predictions. I mean, but I, I, I hope it's something that we could have by, you know, a year from now in the next uh, Fedora 38 release having that. That's what I what it would hope. You know, it also just kind of makes sense because the NVIDIA cards, um, I've done a lot of uh, set up a lot of render farms and whatnot for animation. And most of those render farms have NVIDIA GPUs in them. So just to have that basic control on the server side is wonderful. Yeah. And so, yeah, yeah, I I want to, like, I really do, like, I really appreciate NVIDIA doing this, but, you know, I'm still going to be buying uh, AMD graphics cards for the foreseeable (laughs) future here for my own. AMD uh, love. (laughs) Yeah, right. I mean, they've been doing this for a while, um, and and it just works. And, you know, the new Intel, um, yeah that's going to be interesting again because they've you know they've been doing it as open source for a long time so it's be interesting to see fun fun times i I think it's great that nvidia is doing this but i also agree that i'm just going to keep with amd until until there's a reason to switch like right now it's like there's a potential that it will matter but right now amd is still the you know, the out of the box, it just works approach. And that's pretty awesome. And I, but I am interested to see what Intel is going to be doing, you know, when they do release those GPUs and stuff, because Intel has been around in the space and it longer than AMD has. So uh, in terms of open source. So I'm very Absolutely. excited about that. Yeah. Uh, but I want to switch gears real quick for a, a topic that I think is really interesting because we have we've received feedback consistently from the community about accessibility on Linux and that it's behind macOS and Windows. And I was curious, what do you think can be done to address this in like the overall arcing Linux ecosystem? Yeah, it's a really hard thing. This is actually one of the things when you're looking at our next um, you know, three to five year strategy for Fedora project and what we're going to do. Like this is one of the things things that kept coming up, um, and it's in line with Fedora's you know vision and our mission to you know make make the world better through open source. Mm-hmm. And so, and we want it, it needs to be for everybody. And that includes making it more accessible. And I think there's some 
irony, I guess, because uh, back when Linux was not very... Uh, when Linux was hard to use in general and things were very text-based, um, for some subset of accessibility, like it was actually pretty awesome because yeah. uh, you could you could do your email with the Braille terminal in a way that would be harder in you know like a graphical program and some of those things because there are uh, currently maintained pretty great text-based things, uh, but you know as you know, Linux as Desktop has gotten more graphical, and I think as everything has become more web-based rather than application-based, and you know, just, oh, there's so much more bandwidth, and so streaming, and all like there's those things have been a challenge, you know, for accessibility, and I, you know, Linux just hasn't kept up, and it is especially hard because you know, like this is a place where Apple is in the sweet spot because they can control everything in the very Apple way, uh, right? So they can they can really make that nice. Uh, and they can tell the developers, you will make your application like this, and the developers you know, jump. Um, and with open source world, we've got so many different people doing their own thing. And people who are, you know, right, doing their own software don't individually, as developers, you know, you might have a cool idea for, you know, some new utility, but you don't have the resources yourself to you know, do accessibility stuff on that so that's that's hard um and i'm not sure what the big answer is on um, so i think this this would actually i think be good for something you know like maybe a linux foundation investment or something i think it would actually mm-hmm. be I'm, I'm not gonna call it linux foundation in particular but it's something like big organizational and, and maybe something new that is focused around accessibility would be good uh, but so i think it's a bigger problem that's really hard to solve but it is something that we want to do our part in Fedora, and I don't know the answer, but it's definitely a theme, as something we want to make sure that we can do. And I think there are definitely some things, you know, around the desktop. I, there was actually a, a thread on Twitter that I got bookmarked to respond to, or maybe it was on maybe it was on the fancy new uh, Mastodon thing. Uh, anyway, I, I'm trying to become a, a Mastodon user, <laughs> but it's um, momentum. Um, but yeah, it was kind of about somebody's experience with you know trying to install. Uh, you know, in the modern world and just like actually we've got in the installer we actually have the screen reader there but it doesn't is there's you have to magically know how to start it there's no uh, indicator or thing anything obvious and then when it does start i guess the configuration is set up so that like it doesn't read stuff from chrome by default or chromium um and so like like this setup isn't ideal so it seems like there's probably some low-hanging fruit we can tackle especially for around screen readers um, for people who uh, need that so that seems like that's that's something we can definitely do and honestly like uh, going back to the community driven thing like we would like fedora as a project to be accessible to everyone Uh, so you know if if you find things you know if you are you know person who needs these kind of accommodations and we're not giving them like let us know and we'll try and make it better because honestly like i i don't know um i as as a mostly able person uh, it's you know there are things i take for granted all the time and so um, people who um, can't take them for granted tell us and we'll try and make it better i think that's the Matthew, thank you so much. Um, I'm actually half blind, so um, this doesn't affect me. But I have, fortunately, my one good eye. Sometimes, some days, it's, I can see better than others. And there are times when it would be nice to have a nice installer 
that uh, you know would would read it out nicely, a nice screen reader. And I do use a magnifier um, when I need to. But it's really it's really nice to hear that you are going to focus on some accessibility and making that better. Good, yeah, yeah. No, it's real. It's really important. Um, it's. Uh, it, I think this, this whole open source project. What's exciting to it about me? It's not like it's not just the like we can make software better or you know some sort of like coder utopia thing. It really is like this is an opportunity to make software that belongs to all of us, and if it doesn't belong that. to everybody it doesn't yeah. it, it doesn't it's not getting there yeah and what you were saying earlier about text space yeah i use eSpeak all the time <laughs> yeah. so i love it i i eSpeak and i pipe to read all my documents it's great yeah. <laughs> and i i think um I, i'm hoping that some of the like th there's a big barrier in uh the the um, speech to text the other way around command and control thing just because mm -hmm. a lot of that uses like big cloud-based data models and yeah. especially like individual voice recognition and like you know the google voice assistant that can tell who's speaking and do, give you different mm -hmm. results like um we don't have a good open source equivalent and there are you know some some people working on that it's one of those things where you know um i wish we lived in a world where mozilla as a company were able to um just squander all their money on all of the different things that and still have a successful browser yeah. they, they they wanted to do these things that squander is the wrong word but like um they they kind of you know were trying to tackle all of these problems that they saw and uh, you know it didn't they, they weren't super successful um, in yep. a lot of these things, but there are some projects <laughs> that are out there, and I hope we can get there, especially as, honestly, like, open source GPU computing stuff is a helpful step in the right direction because we'll need yeah. that for the voice processing. Absolutely. Um, and so, and, yeah, a lot of the, like, also the, the synthesized speech stuff, the proprietary things are so far ahead of it. Yeah, and, yeah. like, I think, you know, there's festival which is an academic project um, mm -hmm. and it's got some neat things but it's not good software because it's an academic project i mean it's it's just not mm. meant to actually be used for end users and so yeah um, we're I, we're really behind on a lot of those things um, so i hope we can get people excited about them because that's that's what we need in order to have this developed what are some of some of the most exciting things that the team is working on right now for future releases, Matthew? <laughs> I can't uh, yeah, wait. Right. <laughs> yeah, so this is again like a part of it is Fedora really is an integration project, right? So that's at, at our heart. Like we don't do the features, and so there's also we are, we're deeply connected with the desktop team, you know, at at Red Hat and Fedora's own you know, desktop team. Which mostly does work, you know, in upstream GNOME and in various upstream you know, projects, Pipewire and things like that. So Fedora as a project doesn't necessarily create those things. We kind of see the things out there and try to integrate them and give give polish into them. So it's a little bit hard to like uh, predict a roadmap. Um, so that's my gigantic caveat. But Neil's probably scowling at me because he's like, "That's not inspirational enough." Tell him things here. So we actually we actually we actually do a lot of awesome cool stuff. Um, I think I, I still think the things around Silverblue and CoreOS, around kind of immutable nice. base OS things, are really important. Uh, I think that's this idea of kind of a different way to distribute the OS is 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 
a big thing. And again, less of verifiability of what you have on disk. I think that's important. We have some things kind of landing in the Fedora IoT space that are around you know, verifying that you, your system hasn't become corrupt or that you know, it's out in the field. No, someone hasn't tampered with it. It will be interesting. The, the, the driver stuff, I think there'll be people from you know, Fedora working on the NVIDIA driver. I think that will be an interesting mm-hmm. thing to see. Um, I would like to see also kind of the compute stuff, the open source compute, um, from AMD and Intel and the uh, robotic stuff, all of those things, um, u- using those. I think that's exciting. Um, I'm giving a very incoherent answer here. There, It's such a no, big it's, space that it's... it's uh, <laughs> uh, uh, one, one of the things awesome. I, I, I think is uh, maybe interesting. Um, so I talked about Podman generating uh, Kubernetes configuration. Um, mm-hmm. So Kubernetes is, you know, I think everybody knows what it is at this point. Kubernetes is basically software for running containers in you know cloud environments at scale and it came out of how Google does things internally but isn't how Google did things internally but now it's basically kind of took over OpenStack as the uh, way to do you know, infrastructure as a service kind of offerings it's also fabulously complex um, I think it's you know maybe not as hard to hard as OpenStack in some ways, but it's a, it is an enormous project and all the cloud native things around that are really complicated. Mm-hmm. So if you're going to set up in some, I know people who have it set up as a home lab kind of thing to play with, um, but that's a lot for the sake of doing it. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's pretty complicated. So if you're, if you're, this, this is a long answer that I'm getting to a point here. Uh, if you're want, wanting to run a system made out of you know, running different containers on a local system, like for example, in my house here, I am running Home Assistant, um, uh, you know, running on a Fedora base, of course, nice. uh, to to do, you know, uh, automate the lights and drive my family crazy by having light switches, <laughs> which, are, which are gone from, you know, 100% reliable <laughs> to like 95% reliable. Um, so it, it, it's a very fun project. And so that has a bunch of stuff that is running in containers. And so I would like something to manage their life cycle a little better and run them, you know, not just like, okay, now I got some containers going, now what? Um, so I'm running them with systemd, which is actually really good for this, but it gets kind of complicated. So there's a podman generate systemd, which will make a systemd configuration for a container, but it basically ends up either using whatever con- container configuration is there so it's not descriptive it's just absorbing what's there and then if you make changes you have to make it to the container or you get like a thousand line podman run command which is not very manageable Mm -hmm. there's a thing called it's called quadlet which is not a great name but it's probably going to get integrated into podman um, but it does a systemd generator uh, for these configurations, I think that's really neat and it'll be an easy way to basically set up a system that is managed for running, you know, containers when it's not something you're running at scale. Kubernetes isn't the right thing. It's like your home, it's your one IoT thing run, running Home Assistant, uh, a nice way to manage that easily. Sorry, I am a sysadmin at heart and you can see I got this excited awesome. about the sysadmin yeah. things yeah. here that I may have gone into. I, I don't know. I don't want to. Um, bore people with uh, <laughs> no, some of it the, was, the details. It was, was a long answer, but it was also uh, what I heard is that there are a lot of exciting things happening with the future releases and, yeah. uh, and in the technology <laughs> space in general. Yeah. Uh, um, 
uh, other thing I am excited about from a kind of community perspective. Um, so we we do have a lot of different offerings in Fedora world. So you know we have a Fedora Core OS, which is you know, like Silverblue. Oh, yeah. It's this OS tree based thing for you know running containers and running you know, Kubernetes cluster kind of thing. We also have a Fedora Cloud image, which has been you know, basically just you know, traditional Fedora Linux image, um, not using fancy OS tree or anything like that. Um, and that's been for a while kind of neglected a couple um, very uh, dedicated people kind of pushing it along and making sure that it gets updated and released. And so we now have a new group of people around that that have kind of reinvigorated the working group nice. around that addition. Ooh. And it's going to be kind of put more primary. And I think that's, that's big because, you know, as uh, the desktop popularity uh, has grown a lot in the last few releases like we were talking about, but actually cloud usage is also going like this. So Matthew, you have made it through all of our questions, but you are not at the end yet. You've done a fantastic job up to this point, but now it's time for the lightning round. And okay, okay. you have five seconds to answer each question or I get to choose the answer for you, which is always going to be Arch, and you don't want that to happen. So here we go. We're going to do the lightning round. We're going to shoot them out, and as soon as we ask the question, you give us your first thing that comes to your mind, and then we're going to go to the next question. You ready? Uh, yes. Okay, yeah. let's do it. Yeah. All right. I'm a, real easy. We're going to start it off. Here we go. Firefox or Chrome? Firefox. Favorite drink for late night coding? Oh, uh, uh, coffee, I guess, uh, I, I, water, water there. I that's, changed my answer. <laughs> that's good. That's good. Favorite IDE or text editor. Oh, I've got a soft spot for Joe. Android or <laughs> iOS? Android. The, the most underrated open source project. Joe, the text editor. <laughs> sure. Favorite candy bar. Oh, um, I like the Ritter sport. Um, the the Alpenmilk one. I've never heard of that one. Interesting. Favorite podcast? Destination <laughs> Linux. All right. Awesome. <laughs> Thank you so much for doing the lightning Perfect. round. You Perfect. nailed it. You this is an enjoyable podcast to be on, for sure. <laughs> well, Matthew, congratulations. You survived the gauntlet of the lightning round questions. You nailed it. Thank you so much, truly, for coming on the show and talking with us about all the amazing work. You, all the folks at Fedora, the folks from Red Hat and Fedora that contribute, and the entire community, because I know I could see in the release notes in the Fedora magazine publication how important the community is to you all. And I think there is no doubt that that's why Fedora has just absolutely exploded in popularity because of the awesome community that you all have created. Thank you for delivering such an awesome experience to the open source community. We really appreciate it. Thank you. And yeah, thank you to everybody as well. Um, and thank you for having me here. It's been really a fun, fun time. Nice. It's, awesome. been, it's been awesome to have you. And also real quick, Matthew, I'm going to need that name of that candy bar in Matrix. So just to, oh. just let me, <laughs> I just want to let you know <laughs> yeah, before yeah. we end the interview. <laughs> <laughs> Are you familiar with Rittersport in general? Never heard of it. Yes. <laughs> yes, I've heard of Rittersport, uh, yes. In, in German, the slogan for it is uh, square, practical, good, which I think is probably the most German way to describe a candy bar you'll yeah. ever find. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> but yeah, uh, and they've got a lot of different different kinds, but I think the, the milk chocolate one is my favorite. Okay, I'm going to yeah, have to try this for sure then. I like awesome. the white chocolate. 
This episode of Destination Linux is brought to you by Bitwarden. Get started right now with your free account at bitwarden.com slash tux. A password manager is software that allows you to have peace of mind knowing that your online accounts are secure. Whether you're a business or an individual, this is very important. How many businesses do you know where people were passing around their passwords with sticky notes or they're writing on a piece of paper and sliding it under their keyboard at least if that's really covert, like that's really gonna protect your password there. That's why you need something like Bitwarden. It makes very complex passwords. It auto-generates those passwords. It can automatically fill them in for your login. So it's more convenient for you. It's more convenient if you're a business for all of your employees and users because they're gonna have this amazing tool that they can take with them everywhere, whether using mobile apps, desktop application, even the command line. Literally, you can have your passwords with you wherever you're at. Bitwarden seals and encrypts your private data with end-to-end -end encryption before it ever leaves your device, so you know that you're the only person with access to the data. Go to bitwarden.com tux to get started. You can get started for free, or you can sign up for their premium account. I think you'll want to check that out because you get a gigabyte of encrypted file storage, two-step login with YubiKey, U2F, Duo, Vault Health Reports, Bitwarden Authenticator, Priority Customer Support, and so much more. You get all this for less than a dollar per month. All this inflation, did Bitwarden go and raise the prices? No, because they love their customers and we love them too. Go to bitwarden.com slash tux and get started. And thanks again for Bitwarden for sponsoring this episode of Destination Linux. I was going to give you a hard time for that, but that was great. That was, <laughs> that was awesome. Thank you. That was... That was really good, Ryan. <laughs> I'm surprised it went well because in my brain I was thinking, I wonder how much storage a password takes up and how much that weighs. How, yeah. How, uh, how many how many tons of passwords do you need before <laughs> the vault cannot take it anymore? <laughs> Let's face it, sometimes there is no time to commit to learning a full AAA graphic game, which requires constant attention and honing of your skills and this as we know, can take hours. <laughs> yep. That's where text adventures come in, like the choose-your-own-adventure books of old, but now on your PC. This week's game is Paradox Factor, a 30,000-word time-traveling text adventure without graphics or, or sound effects, just a story and your choices and the theater of mind. I like that. With Paradox Factor, you use the mouse to click and choose your choice for story progression. And I like that you can put the game in dark mode and, and increase mm -hmm. the text size. That made it a lot easier for, for me to get through it with visual impairment. <laughs> and it it's, it's really cool because the game actually starts you off in a wheelchair on a roof on a cold, rainy day. And a man is screaming at you because you're holding a gun. Oh, no. <laughs> you know, that's not something that I would ever normally be doing. <laughs> I love it. Jill plays these games that have like <laughs> violence or crazy things in them. <laughs> yeah. And it surprises me that she can even get through any of them as nice and kind. And like she breathes like unicorns and rainbows. So this reading this stuff must be shocking for you, Jill. But yeah. I love these type of games, these text based adventures. I was a huge choose your own adventure fan. Like that was my jam. Those books as a kid, you know, and I'd, I would cheat all the time. I'm going to tell you all now, I feel like it's been 25, 30 years since uh, I cheated in a lot of those text play, those adventure <laughs> okay. books. What's yeah. the phrase about like um, the, yeah. the statue of limitations is passed. So you're yeah, okay. the statue oh, of limitations yeah. Yeah. is passed. Uh, I used to flip ahead and see if my choice would be the right one if it wasn't, uh, you know, but I feel like yes. that's what Captain Kirk would do because he'd break all the rules to win, you know? Absolutely. Sure. So <laughs> sure. I, I, don't, I don't know, but that I love these type of games. These are really yeah. fun. 
Yeah, me too. You know, I used to actually have fun playing uh, Zork on my Apple II and my Commodore 64 back in the day. You know, battling trolls and changing directions with a mere press of the keyboard was actually a really exciting way to play a game. Yeah. And actually, Zork was actually one of the first interactive fiction text-based games and one of the first real computer games to gain traction and popularity. So all of us kids of, of my age played Zork. It was just a thing. <laughs> I actually never played any text games, but I, oh. am, a, I am aware of Zork. Like, I have cool. no experience in this space whatsoever. But no, even, you're thinking you're, of when I called you Dork. That's no. Dork, there we go. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Wow. You know, it was really one of the very first virtual role-playing games. In fact, it has the term Dungeon Master in it, which had been used before in role-playing games, but that game popularized that term, Dungeon Master. So I just, I've always loved uh, uh, text-based games and interactive games because I've always loved the choose-your-own-adventure books. Those were always some of my favorites to read. So, you know, if you, you need some downtime without all the blinky lights, and if you're a fan of these old school text adventures like Zork from the 1970s, like, like I am and Ryan is, check this one out. It's only $1.99 on Steam. That's very cool. I kind of want to check this one out and play Zork, too. Now, yeah. Michael was talking about it. I think I've heard of it. But I don't think I've ever played Zork or any of those. I wonder if you could no, just you play it have, online. You just heard it. It was Dork, Ryan. Just oh, you, it was when what, you called me Dork. Right, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> you can't take my own. <laughs> Zork. Unbelievable. Well, the Unbelievable. amazing thing also about Zork is it started on it. They wrote it originally for the PDP-10. And they later on, it got too big and they didn't have enough memory for it. So they split it up in three games. So Very nice. In three games. Not have enough yeah. memory for... The text, text adventures. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yep, yep. And they have demos. Uh, the hosted games has demos for a lot of the text-based games, including a Paradox Factor. Very nice. Well, once you get all those games, you're probably <laughs> going to want to back them up because you don't want to lose yeah. them, right? So that's what we're going to talk about this week is Pika Backup. So Sophie Harold is the maintainer of the software spotlight known as Pika Backup. It features... Things like set up new backup repositories or use existing ones, create backups locally and remote, save time and disk space because Pika Backup does not need to copy known data again. So you don't have to worry about having a thousand versions of the same file. Encrypt your backups, list created archives and browse through their contents, recover files or folders via your file browser. One feature not available yet is the scheduled backups, but I have no doubt that's going to be coming because this package, it's a flat pack as well, so it's very easy to get a hold of. Uh, just keeps growing with more and more features. And one of the things that I really like about this tool is the simplicity of it. The yeah. fact that if you're not in a habit of making backups, and you know on this show we've told you a bajillion mm-hmm. times to start making backups. Make at least then, three. Yes. Everything. Exactly. <laughs> and if you're Jill, you make them all on floppy disk, <laughs> which is a really secure way. But this is a good tool to get people started because Nice graphical interface, very easy to set up. You just run your backups and go. It's a very cool tool. Pika backup. Yeah, I like the fact that, that it's it's look going for the pro- approach of doing a simplistic style and the you know it, it guides you through a lot of the ways of doing things and it also supports encrypted backups and all that. So it's really cool, especially with the remote option if you want to do that. But Ryan, I do have to inform you of something. You okay. pronounce the name of the application wrong. So okay. <laughs> it's, it's actually this. 
Pika pika. <laughs> okay, let me try that. Pika pika. Pika pika. Much, much better. Yeah, Jill did it a little bit better. Yeah. But, what? But, <laughs> really? <laughs> Re- really? How what? dare you? That's shocking. I've been working on that for seconds. For seconds. Uh, <laughs> Pika. It is a cute name for a tool. Pika. Uh, I mean, yeah. that, that's just, I, I immediately thought of Pikachu too when yep. I saw yeah. this tool. Right, <laughs> I think we all did, huh? <laughs> yeah, for sure. Instantly. <laughs> all right. So let's go to the tip of the week. Last week, we talked about creating custom keyboard shortcuts for whatever applications or your system in general. And this week, we're going to talk about something that relates to shortcuts, but it's also shortcuts that already exist, but you might not know they exist. And I like to call them sequence shortcuts. That's not what they're typically referred to as because what they're typically referred to as makes no sense. They're typically called mnemonic shortcuts. But what it does is essentially, let's say you have uh, an application that has a file edit and help menu or something like that at the top of it. Like all applications have these kinds of menus or have a functionality to support these kinds of menus. So you would do Alt-F to go to the file menu or you go to Alt-E to go to the edit menu. And typically, let's say, for example, you want to edit something in Caden Live or Inkscape, you can hit Alt-E and then another character right after that in, in a sequence. That's why I call it sequence shortcuts. Mm. So that you can do all sorts of stuff. And every submenu allows you to go to another tool. So you could go from, you could have combinations of even like six or seven different layer, uh, layers of these shortcuts to accomplish something. And while that might sound like it's a lot to do, once you get used to doing sequence shortcuts, you will love them because they allow you to do a faster approach depending on the kind of thing. So for example, for those who use something like Photoshop or Inkscape that have tons of tools and plugins, this is a really good thing because you can have all these different shortcuts attached to so many different features without having to have these special you know, key combination shortcuts because there's only so many you can really do. And this way you can have a lot more. And the way to find them is that they are all there by default and they tell you, but you have to know what to look for. So when you do Alt-E, you can actually hold down Alt and you will see that these letters are underlined. When you the underline letter is the letter you do in the sequence that you want to activate this feature. So that is a really practical so- a solution for shortcuts that I use all the time and they're available in most applications. So if you've never used them before, I think you'll enjoy using them once you start doing so. Nice. So we got conferences too that should be on your mind because one particularly scale, Jill, uh-huh. Michael, and me are going to be at. Potentially other folks too, but you're definitely getting Jill, Michael, and me. We're going to be at scale this year, July 28th through the 31st. We're going to be hanging out with Jill. She's going to be taking us around the conference. Mm -hmm. It's going to be so much fun. You're going to be able to find Jill with the penguin hat. If you don't see the penguin hat, look for a giant person. That's Michael. And (laughs) probably be swarming around him somewhere there. (laughs) We also have the OpenSUSE conference June 2nd through the 4th in the Open Source Summit North America in person or virtual in Austin, Texas, June 21st through the 24th. So a big thank you to each and every one of you by supporting us, by watching, listening, however you do it. We love your faces. We're here every Sunday at 1 p.m. Eastern live at DLNlive.com. And the best part, everyone is invited to watch the recording of Destination Linux each and every week. We can't wait to see you in the chat. And when you get to see us each and every week, you know what you get, Michael? You get the extra bonus of seeing like 
technical failures, hardware Ooh, issues. That's true. But the fact is, we recover and we still make an amazing show, mostly mm-hmm. thanks to Jill, but we still make it happen. We are <laughs> professionals, people. Yes. We can. Well, eh. okay, okay. We are relatively somewhat amateurish professionals. Yeah. Okay. Ma- I'll come up with another one later. We're beginners. But, no, we're a little more than beginners. We're intermediate novices. <laughs> there we go. Okay. Can we make sure. that in a shirt? Sure. I listen, I listen to Destination <laughs> Linux for their e- intermediate novice. Gosh. Yeah. You know but, what? We are all such zorks. We're yes, a bunch we of are. zorks. Absolutely yeah, right. A bunch of zorks. So, uh, speaking of shirts that you could get, you could go to the store and check it out. We have tuxdigital.com where you can get links to everything, but we have uh, t shirts, hoodies, mugs, stickers. All sorts of great stuff at the store. And also, if you want to become a patron, you can join us in the patron-only post show that happens every week after the show in our 60,000-square-foot virtual stadium. And this is uh, this is something you can do by going to tuxdigital.com slash contribute. You can also sign up to be a patron of other shows there. But if you want to be joining us in the patron-only post show, check out the patrons for Destination Linux. There's a lot of great stuff. You even get unedited versions of the show and so many other great perks. And sign you can, me up. Yeah, that sounds amazing. So many great perks. There's oh. there's so you can also get to join us after the show when we're done with all the technical difficulties and we're much more relaxed. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Sure. Yeah, and make sure to check out all the amazing shows here on on the textdigital.com. We have the Pseudo Show, This Week in Linux, the DOS Geek Channel, Linux Out Loud, Hardware Addicts, GameSphere, and Linux Saloon. And everyone head to textdigital.com and subscribe to all these great shows. And don't forget to leave a thumbs up, a rating on your favorite app so others can discover the power of open source and keep those penguins marching in the full monte of Linux and open source awesome sauce. And everybody, have an absolutely wonderful week. And remember that the journey itself is just as important as the destination. Later, Zorks. And we love you. <laughs> Later, Zorks. <laughs> Later, Zorks. I like that. Uh, see you next week, everybody. Uh, <laughs> Later, Sorks. Oh, my goodness. <laughs>